It's a joy to be here, and uh, first of all, I want to thank Jeff for the invitation. It's always a joy to come to a Sovereign Grace Church. Uh, we are sister churches, and um, we belong to this wonderful family of churches, Sovereign Grace Churches, whose mission is to plant and strengthen churches throughout the world. And by God's grace, we already have about 10 churches in Mexico, and, and the number keeps growing. Next year, we plan on planting two other churches, and about five to seven churches are in the process of being adopted into Sovereign Grace in Mexico right now. And um, please convey my gratefulness to Pastor uh, Kyle for the invitation. It's a joy to be here with you all. And I love California. My, my family loves California. California is, and don't tell this to other churches in Sovereign Grace, but this is my favorite state in the Union. I think it's the most beautiful state. And um, we always uh, have had a connection, a family connection to uh, Southern California because my mom's twin sister, when she got married way back in 1959, she moved to the uh, San Fernando Valley. And we've been coming to Southern California since 1965. And that gives you an idea of how old I am. But um, we love Southern California. And then my mom passed away a year and a half ago, but my, my aunt still lives. She's going to be 90 in a few months, and we plan on going to say hi to her, although she almost lost her memory now, but we're going to spend some time with her and my cousin and, and hug her one more time. And now, my only sister, we are four brothers, and the youngest one is my sister Adriana, who is here with me, along with my dear wife, Sandra and Sophie, and she married a guy from Venezuela and moved to Southern California also. He lives in Covina, and we are going to spend the rest of the week with them, taking a short break as well. So thank you again for the invitation, and let's get started. Um, Pastor Jeff uh, told me that you are in the middle of a wonderful sermon series. He just reminded us of that, the beauty of the church, and that you have already heard messages about the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the people of Christ, and the kingdom of Christ. Well, this morning I am going to speak to you about another characteristic of the church that makes her beautiful, about another important reason why we love the local church. I am going to talk about the important relationship between the church and the truth. And let me say that I believe this will be a timely message. Do you know why? Because, unfortunately, we live, we live in times in which half-truths and lies are by far more promoted and embraced than the truth. And it saddens me deeply to see that in our communities, both in Mexico and here in the U.S., speaking the truth about life in general and about the person and the work of Jesus Christ in particular is becoming more and more the exception rather than the rule. And one commentator said that the truth is not as true as it used to be, and that sometimes it may even be falsehood. And then he added this. He said that during one White House scandal, a prominent lawyer was asked if this if, this, if his client was telling the truth, and his reply was this. Listen to this. The truth is what is in that deposition, unless we make a deal with the prosecutor and say something else. 
In other words, the truth is something that may or may not actually be true. Something that can be manipulated for personal gain. And this morning we are going to see that the church is beautiful because she has been called by God to bear witness to the truth of God's work and to promote and protect the whole truth concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Our text for this message will be 1 Timothy 3, chapter, uh, chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I'm sorry, verses 14 through 16. And the title of this message is The Beauty of the Church, Pillar and Buttress of Truth. I'm going to pray briefly, and then I'm going to read the text both in English and in Spanish. Would you bow your heads with me, please? <clears throat> Lord, thank you that we are here gathering your name and uh, about to listen to what you have to tell us as a church here in Santa Ana this morning. Holy Spirit, help us. Open our eyes. Open our understanding. Open our minds to hear everything that you want to speak to us. And help me to communicate your precious word in a clear and effective way that we all may be more and more transformed into the likeness of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his holy name. Amen. Let me read it first in Spanish, and then I'll read it in English. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Esto te escribo aunque tengo la esperanza de ir pronto a verte. Para que si tardo sepas cómo debes conducirte en la casa de Dios, que es la iglesia del Dios viviente, columna y baluarte de la verdad. E indiscutiblemente grande es el misterio de la piedad. Dios fue manifestado en carne, justificado en el Espíritu, visto de los ángeles, predicado a los gentiles, creído en el mundo y recibido arriba en gloria. Let's read God's word in English now. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the, by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. My first point has to do with the mission of the church with regard to the truth. And in order to help you understand a little better not only the passage we are studying this morning, but the entire letter of 1 Timothy, I need to tell you a little about the occasion that led Paul to write this letter. When Paul left Timothy, uh, he was in Ephesus when he received this letter. And he had asked him specifically to deal with some false teacher that had come into the church. And though Paul wanted to, he had not been able to return to the city of Ephesus. And therefore, he wrote this letter in order to give Timothy some further instructions. But the false teachers were the main occasion for the letter. And this allows us to understand why Paul says in verse 14 of our text, I hope to come to you soon. And then we see that in the rest of verses 14 and 15, 
he mentions the purpose for which he wrote this entire letter when he says, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Verse 15 is very significant because as Paul declares his purpose for writing this letter, he also gives us one of the most important New Testament descriptions of the church's identity and mission. Paul uses three expressions here, three descriptive expressions of the church, and each one illustrates a different aspect of the church. I will speak of the first two very, very briefly because your pastors have already preached about them in previous messages. But I will spend most of my time on the third one because that is the characteristic of the church that we want to focus on this morning. Let's see the first one. The first way in which Paul describes the church in verse 15 is as the household of God. And because of how the words this word is used in other verses of this same chapter. We know that household here means family. The members of the true church are sons and daughters of God the Father. And having been born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus, we have been adopted into the family of God. Therefore, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And as children of God, each one of us has an equal dignity before him, regardless of age, gender, race, culture. And we are called to love one another and to put into practice all the one another commands that we find in the New Testament. And then, the second way in which Paul describes the church in verse 15 it says the church of the living God. And what this means is that the church is not only God's household or family, but also his house. John Calvin wrote this. He said, there are good reasons why God should call the church his house. For not only has he received us as his sons by the grace of adoption, but he himself dwells in the midst of us. This is the fulfillment under the new covenant of a promise God had made many times to the people of Israel under the old covenant. In Exodus 29.45, God had said this, I, dwell, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And it is also possible that when Paul wrote this, he was trying to remind the Ephesians of something he had written to them in a previous letter. And in the letter that bears their name, the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 22, where he had written this, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the church, we clearly see here that the church is the house that God himself built and continues to build to this day. And knowing that the living God dwells in the midst of his church must have been very encouraging to the Ephesians because they lived under the shadow 
of a temple of the goddess Diana. And that temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But as impressive as that temple was from the outside, no spiritual life could be found in it. Because the goddess in the temple was only a lifeless idol. And Paul wanted the Ephesians to be always aware that the living God does not dwell in temples built by human hands. The real temple is the church. The real temple is us. And when we as members of our local church are scattered during most of the week, it is very hard to be aware of the fact that God truly lives among his people. We are so busy going about our daily routines. And, that, and we forget that when we gather for public worship is when God most clearly manifests his presence. And let me ask you this. Do you really believe this with all your heart? Do you, do you come to church every Sunday with the firm conviction and with a joyful expectation that the Holy Spirit will always make his presence known amongst us, no matter how few or how many we are? And a wonderful result of this will be that whenever visitors come to a church where the Spirit of God manifests His presence, they will be able to say, surely God is in this place. So let's pray, brothers and sisters, that the Holy Spirit will give us the conviction and the faith and the awareness that whenever we come to church on Sunday, we are coming to have a real encounter with the true and living God. Amen? And now. <clears throat> The third way in which Paul describes the church in verse 15 is as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And this remarkable description will be our major concern this morning. The word pillar can also be translated as column. And the purpose of or the architectural function of pillars, as John Stott says, is not only to hold the roof to hold the roof in place, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. The inhabitants of Ephesus, they had a vivid illustration of this in their temple of Diana, because that temple boasted a hundred columns and each one over 60 feet high. It was a tremendous building. And those columns, those pillars together lifted its massive and shining roof made of marble. Just so, the church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen and admired by the world around us. And indeed, as pillars, we lift a building high, the building of the church, and, and not physical building, but the body of Christ. And the church functions not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. And the other word Paul uses here to describe the church in its relationship to the truth is buttress. A buttress 
is not a building's foundation. It's a part of its supporting structure. And more specifically, a buttress helps to stabilize the walls and the pillars of a large building. And in the same way, the Church of Jesus Christ helps to hold the truth steady. Against what? Listen to this. It helps to hold the truth steady against the storms of false teaching. The architectural metaphors that Paul is using here of pillar and buttress allow us to see and to grasp the awesome responsibilities God lays on us, the members of his church, with regard to the truth. He's speaking to us, brothers, not only to the Ephesians back then. He's speaking to each one of you who are members of this local church. First of all, as one of its pillars, because the church is a pillar, not the only pillar, but as a pillar of the church, we are called to hold it high before a watching world. And this is accomplished as we faithfully proclaim the truth of God's word to those in our sphere of influence. And as a buttress, we are called to hold the truth firm in order to keep it from collapsing under the weight of any kind of false teaching. And how do we accomplish that? We accomplish that as we boldly defend it when it is under attack. And I know it's happening here and also in Mexico. The truth is more and more under attack each year that we live. Another way of saying all this is that God has entrusted to us, to the church, the noble task of both promoting and protecting the truth of his word. And the fact that the word buttress has been translated in some uh, versions of the Bible as foundation can be a source of confusion to some Christians. Because they wonder, how can it be possible for the church to be the foundation of the truth when they have always been taught that it is the other way around? The truth is the foundation of the church. Because that's what Paul himself declares in Ephesians 2, chapters, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. There he wrote this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, in Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So, what is the right biblical answer? Is the truth the foundation of the church, or is the church the foundation of the truth? I am going to quote John Stott again, because the way he explains this can really help us dispel all the confusion. Listen to what he says. He says that the answer is both. How can it be both? Listen. When Paul taught that the truth is the foundation of the church, he was referring to the church's life and health. The church rests on the truth, depends on the truth, cannot exist without the truth. As a matter of fact, the church came into existence by the truth. But when he taught that the church is the foundation of the truth, he was referring to the church's mission. The church is called to serve the truth, 
The church is called to hold it fast and to make it known. So then the church and the truth need each other. The church depends on the truth for its existence, and the truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. Wow! What an excellent explanation, don't you think? Of the significant relationship between the church of the living God and the truth of his word. And now that we clearly understand the immense privilege and the huge responsibility we all have of promoting and protecting, of proclaiming, of defending the truth God has entrusted to us, let me ask you another question, brothers and sisters. How do you feel about this privilege and responsibility? What does it bring to your soul? Does it bring fear, guilt, uncertainty, restlessness? Or does it bring gratefulness, joy, assurance, boldness? Because we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Lord will give us the grace and the power to do what he has called us to do to proclaim and to protect his truth. May the Lord give us the grace to always be willing to do his will, and not by our own power, but by the power of his Spirit. Amen. And now my second point, the truth we are called to promote and protect. I'm going to ask you this question, very important question, and this must be going through your minds right now. If the church is beautiful because, among other things, She was designed by God to function as a pillar and buttress of the truth. And if that means that each one of us as members of the church are called to proclaim and defend the very truth that makes the church beautiful, then the obvious question is, what is the truth which we as the church must both proclaim without fear or compromise to all the world and must protect against every distortion? every falsehood. What is the truth? In order to be faithful in carrying out these awesome responsibilities, in order to do our part in helping to preserve the beauty of the church, we had better know and understand very well what is the biblical answer to this question. And the truth that God has called us to proclaim and protect is none other and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What, the book, what in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13, Paul refers to as the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The glorious message of the great redemption God has accomplished for us by grace and through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. The truth is what in the following verse of our text, in verse, three of, in verse 16 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul calls the mystery of godliness. Remember that the word mystery in the New Testament is not referring to something that cannot be known, but rather to something that had been hidden for a long time but is now known because God has been pleased to reveal it to us. And Paul uses the word here 
to refer to the entire revealed content of God's plan to bring salvation through the person and work of Christ. In other words, the mystery is Jesus himself. It's the mystery of Christ. That's how, that is how Paul himself said it in Colossians 1, 26 and 27, where he says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, that's to us, the, that mystery to them, he says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is the mystery, the redemption that he came to accomplish, the glorious message of the gospel is the mystery. And that is what Paul himself was faithful to proclaim, and God calls us to be just as faithful, proclaiming and protecting as well. In verse 16 of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul affirms the greatness of the truth we are called to proclaim and protect. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then he goes on to quote a poetic description of the great mystery or message of the gospel. Listen to how he puts it. He says, he, talking about Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And some scholars believe that these six lines were part of an early creed or confession because their first words all rhyme. And they also think that this verse was a part of an early Christian hymn. And although scholars disagree as to how these lines should be divided, one reasonable suggestion is to separate the creed into two stanzas, each one consisting of three lines. The first stanza refers to the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, alludes to his incarnation, by which the pre-existing Son was born into the world, and then vindicated by the Spirit most likely refers to how the Holy Spirit vindicated Jesus first by his mighty deeds, by all the miracles he performed, and then by his resurrection from the dead. And seen by angels indicates that he was attended by angels throughout his earthly life, but also that they were present during his ascension to heaven. And the second stanza refers to the work of Jesus Christ after his ascension. Proclaimed among the nations is a reference to the church's worldwide mission of going to all nations to make disciples. Believed on in the world refers to the advancement of the gospel as people have responded in faith to the good news of salvation. And taken up in glory could refer to his final appearance in power and great glory. A well-known scholar explains the difference between the two stanzas in this way. He says, the first stanza sings Christ's earthly ministry concluding with a word of triumph and glorification. Similarly, the second stanza sings the ongoing ministry of Christ through his church, through us, concluding again with the theme of glorification. In a certain sense, he says, both stanzas reflect the 
the theme of humiliation and exaltation. And that is exactly what the truth of the Bible, of which we as the church are a pillar and a buttress, is all about. The entire Bible tells one grand story of redemption. And that's why the entire Bible is about one main truth, the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. We can be absolutely sure about this. You know why, brothers and sisters? Because Christ himself, when he had resurrected from the dead, he told this to a couple of disciples as they were walking together to a village named Emmaus. And we, we read this in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. Listen, Jesus was talking to these disciples. We're all confused, all sad because Jesus had been crucified. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and he's talking there about the, whole, the entire Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know what this means? This is very important. Jesus himself was telling the disciples there that the entire Bible, the Bible that they had in existence back then, because only the, New Te the Old Testament uh, had been written, the entire revelation of God up to that day, the entire Old Testament was about one person, was about one thing. Suffering and the exaltation of Christ. And then he said it again, but now to all the apostles and to others who were gathered with them that same day. Later in the night, he appeared to them, and we read it, we read this in Luke 24, 44 to 47. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47. The Lord shows up. When the disciples are gathered, all afraid and sad and discouraged, and then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And there he is covering the entire Old Testament again, because that's how the Jews referred to the Old Testament as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And listen to what he continues to, to tell him. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So what is the truth? What is the Bible all about? What is the grand story, the only story that runs throughout this beautiful book, what Jesus came to accomplish. The entire Bible is about the redemption that God sent his son to accomplish, and he was going to accomplish that redemption through suffering a lot, and then through his resurrection and ascension. 
And I'll say it again. The truth we are called by God to proclaim and defend, the truth that contributes to make the church beautiful, the truth the entire Bible is all about, is the truth about the sufferings and the glory of Jesus Christ, about the good news of forgiveness of sins and the new abundant and eternal life that Christ gives by His grace to all sinners like us who repent and believe in Him. It is the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, what we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, what this glorious passage teaches us is that another very important reason why the church is beautiful is because she is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And this means that God has entrusted to us with the noble and awesome task of proclaiming and defending the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this privilege and responsibility applies not only to pastors and leaders, not only to teachers, it applies to all of us who are members of the Church of the Living God. And I'm going to give you three points of application. The first one is this. How are we going to be faithful to that high calling God has given us to proclaim and defend His truth? Well, this is the first thing that I think we need to do. Do your very best effort to really know and understand the truth of the gospel as well as you possibly can. Read and study your Bible with gospel glasses on. Now that you know that the entire Bible is about Jesus, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to you in every page of the Bible when you read it. And read books about the full scope of the gospel. And never be satisfied again with believing that the gospel is just to repent of my sins, to be sure that I will go to heaven when I die. That's just a small portion of the gospel. The gospel is so much more than that. So read books about the full scope of the gospel. Books that will help you understand all that we are and all that is now ours because of our union with Christ. You need to do this if you are to be faithful and effective in proclaiming and defending the truth of the gospel of Christ. And as you do this, you will help to preserve the beauty of the church. Second point of application. Keep always in mind, because we very easily forget this, keep always in mind that we function as a pillar and buttress of the truth not only when we proclaim and share the message of the gospel with an unbeliever. No, we also function as pillar and buttress when we live our daily lives in a way that is consistent with the truth we are proclaiming. We are defending the truth, proclaiming the truth by the way we love our spouses, by the way we raise our children, by the way we spend our money, by the way we entertain ourselves, by the way we carry out our job on a daily basis. And one more point of application. 
growing your passion for the truth that you and I are called to proclaim and protect, which really means that we are to grow in our love and passion for the person of the Redeemer and King, our Redeemer and King Jesus Christ. When you are passionate about Jesus, when you love him because he first loved you and loved you a lot more when you were his enemy, you will always be ready and willing to proclaim and protect the truth about the one who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Let us pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for speaking so clearly to us through the pages of Scripture, through this wonderful book in which you have revealed to us not only who you are and how you are, but your will for us who have now been redeemed by your Son, Jesus. Thank you so much. And thank you for telling us we are called to proclaim the truth of Jesus and to protect the truth about Jesus on a daily basis, everywhere we are, in everything that we do, in all that we think. And we need your help to do that. We cannot do it by ourselves. We tend to forget what our mission is. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us. Fill us with your power that we may be constantly aware of the greatness, of the beauty, of the love, of the majesty and power of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we may be faithful until he comes back, faithful in proclaiming and defending his truth around this world of ours. And we ask you this in his precious name. Amen.